You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. It's the year 1899, and it's a warm summer evening. A chattering crowd sits inside a local church, waiting for a sold-out show to begin. Somewhere in the darkness, a violin begins to play, and the crowd falls silent. A woman glides gracefully across the stage, stops, and faces the audience. She has the posture and poise one would expect of a proper Victorian lady, but her costume is exciting and exotic, like something out of a dime novel. She glows in a white buckskin top and skirt, adorned with red lining, fringes, rabbit pelts, moose hair, and porcupine quills. Colorful beads and silver trade brooches glimmer in the stage light, along with the bear claw necklace that wraps her elegant throat and the wampum belts and hunting knife that are strapped to her side. Less obvious is the human scalp that dangles from her waist, a grisly addition that is perhaps even more titillating than the shortness of her skirt, which ignores contemporary modesty to reveal the young lady's moccasined feet, buckskin-clad ankles, and lower calves. It is the traditional dress of her people, the papers say, the raiment of a Mohawk princess. And she is a princess with many names. She made her literary debut as Dekionwake, a Mohawk name that means double wampum or double life. The newspapers sometimes call her the Indian poetess or the Mohawk maiden, but she is best known by her English name, E. Pauline Johnson internationally renowned poet, author, and performer. She lifts her hand, begins to speak, and for the next half hour, her lyrical voice wraps her listeners in the romance of the frontier. The first poem is told from the perspective of the wife of a great Mohawk chief. She is kidnapped by an enemy, but manages to trick and kill her assailant and return home. It's a story of revenge, sexuality, and honor. The second is an old fur trapper's tale, complete with phonetics and choice dialect, about a heroic and friendly native who saved the narrator from certain death, only to be murdered later by racist bigots when he tried to help them as well. The third is a patriotic hymn about the bravery and strength of the Northwest Mounted Police, and it's met with patriotic applause. But it's the fourth poem that has the most impact and it serves as a fitting end to the first act before Johnson swaps her buckskin skirt for an equally striking modern Victorian gown and switches themes from indigenous stories to British-Canadian nationalism. This final piece of the first act, she says, is inspired by an old indigenous legend. She calls it the legend of the Capel Valley. You're listening to Fireside Canada, my podcast about Canadian legends, lies, and lore. I'm David Williams. Tonight, a beloved prairie classic that tells us how a certain valley in Saskatchewan got its name. Or does it? For over a century, this legend of two young people and their tragic love has served as an explanation for why a picturesque valley in southern Saskatchewan has the unusual name of Capel. But, as you might expect, there is more to the story. In this episode, we'll hear the elements of that classic tale, learn how it became famous, and then take a deeper dive into the history of one of the most well-known stories from the land of the living skies. This is the legend of Capel. I am the one who loved her as my life, had watched her grow to sweet young womanhood, won the dear privilege to call her wife, and found the world, because of her, was good. I am the one who heard the spirit voice, of which the pale-faced settlers love to tell, and from whose strange story they have made their choice of naming this fair valley the Capel. The audience hangs on every word as she tells a tale of lost innocence, tragic love, and the end of youth on the northern plains. Later, 
newspaper reviews will praise it for its emotional words and performance. The poem will prove so popular, in fact, that it will soon appear in newspapers and magazines across the continent and in Johnson's second book of poetry titled Canadian Born. In 1910, after retiring in Vancouver, B.C., Johnson will write and publish a prose version of this story. Four decades later, new versions of the legend will start to appear, penned by various authors, and published everywhere from folklore collections to tourist pamphlets and travel guides. Through it all, it is Johnson who will be credited with popularizing and immortalizing the legend. So what is the legend? Well, the version that's best known today, the one inspired by Johnson's work, is very much a product of its time. Pauline Johnson has long been a somewhat complicated and controversial public figure. As recently as 2017, the Toronto School Board declared that a well-known folk song was, quote, inappropriate and racist, end quote, not because of its content, but because it was, according to them, based on a poem by Pauline Johnson, and thus steeped in a racist historical context. It's true that, even at the peak of her popularity, Johnson was sometimes criticized for seeming a little too enthusiastic about post-colonial romanticism and the noble savage stereotype. Now, don't get me wrong, she was a very impressive artist and businesswoman, and a supporter of indigenous people. But she also knew her audience, which consisted mostly of wealthy white British people, and she knew what they wanted. For the most part, her successors, the authors of the 50s and 60s who retold the story of Capel, seem to have taken that idea and run with it. So while the core of the story, in my opinion, comes from an honest place and has a solid foundation, its modern versions are what many would consider problematic at best. These are stories, mostly from the mid-20th century, but some from as late as the 2000s, about a handsome young, quote, Indian brave and his beautiful Indian maiden, unquote, with names like Fleet of Foot or Morning Star and Forest Flower or Prairie Rose, who lived in a pristine and rugged wilderness still untainted by, quote-unquote, civilization. These romantic, out-of-touch themes have become so connected to the story that even more recent retellings, a book of ghost stories written in 2000, a number of online blog posts and articles, even a popular blank verse rendition published as late as 2002, can't help but use these outdated terms and antiquated sentiment. I don't want to be just one more person waxing romantic about young lovers, wigwams or teepees, and idealistic natural settings. So I've decided to give you just a quick summary instead. It should still be relatively easy to follow along. Most of us have heard this kind of story before. But for those listeners who really enjoy the story part of the podcast, don't worry. I'll share a story that is inspired by this legend at the end of the episode. A short note before I begin. This story is, first and foremost, an indigenous story, told by a specific group of people about a river that played an integral part in their lives. Over the span of two centuries, it has grown beyond the valley and has been embraced by a huge number of people from countless backgrounds and ancestries, both within the province and beyond. As usual in this podcast, I'll be diving into not just the story and its meaning, but its history as well. The problem is, that history is stained with elements of racism and injustice. I won't dwell on that fact, but I won't gloss over it either. I'll be discussing and quoting some antiquated and racist ideas and language with the intention of providing some context and aiding in understanding the history of the legend. This is a warning that some of the things discussed in this episode might be uncomfortable. With that said, on with the show. Part 2. The Legend It was said they shared a love unlike any other. Or at least it was one in a million which in stories like this means it was mostly unremarkable, save for the fact that it was forged in the raw emotions of youth, with feelings still unchecked by the cynicism and disappointment that comes with experience. Young Love They were everything a young man and a young woman are supposed to be in stories like this. He was strong, brave, adventurous, daring yet sensitive, maybe a little naive, but 
What he lacked in experience, he made up for with a youthful enthusiasm for love and for life. For her part, she was beautiful yet charmingly timid, talented yet reserved, desired and pursued by everyone who saw her, of course, but also independent, discerning, pure. Some say they knew each other since childhood, and that's why their love was so strong, so transcendental. Others said that he was the end of a long line of suitors. He was the dashing hero who finally succeeded in winning her heart. Either way, they fell in love and planned to marry, until suddenly the young man was called away, either to war or to business, one of those adult responsibilities that are thrust upon us in our youth by a society that calls for us to do our duty. And so the young man left in his canoe, but promised he would return before the first fallen leaf of autumn. Time passed, and somewhere on a distant shore, triumphant but lovesick, the young man began his journey home. He waved away his comrades' calls to join them in celebration. He ignored hunger and fought off sleep. His thoughts were solely of her as he paddled through night and day and night again. The evening before his arrival, he was resting a moment, letting his canoe drift silently down the river, when he heard a voice call his name. He looked around. Who calls? he answered. He peered through the darkness and listened. The shores were empty. He was alone, but the voice came again, this time much more clearly. A woman's voice was calling his name. Who calls? he answered again, but this time in French for some reason. Capel. He repeated, more desperate now, Capel, Capel. Receiving no reply, he pushed on. He saw the fire before he saw the shore. He arrived at her village just before dawn, but she was not there to greet him, at least not in the way he expected. Her lifeless body lay near a funeral fire. Her father, standing with bowed head nearby, tells him that she called her love's name twice just before she died. The young man realizes it was her voice he had heard on the river. Heartbroken, he climbs back into his canoe and disappears. Ever since then, the story says, the river and its valley have been known as Capel. Many finish off with the classic ghost story ending. To this day, some say when the moon rises over the distant hill, you can still hear on the wind the ghostly echo of one of the heartbroken lovers. It's either her voice calling softly to her beloved or his spirit responding in kind with Capel. Who calls? Now, one of the weirdest things about a lot of these stories, Pauline Johnson's included, is the author's insistence that the protagonist, upon hearing a ghostly voice call his name, chooses to reply first in his own language and then in French, Capel, who calls? They justify this by having the protagonist consider that perhaps it is a French voyageur or Métis trader calling his name. They seem so anxious to use a title drop to have the protagonist actually say the name of the valley and the story that he's in, and I'm not really sure why. The only reason that comes to mind is that they didn't want to deal with the uncomfortable and certainly unromantic fact that foreign cultures had swept through the land where indigenous people had lived for thousands of years and assigned both the people and the land an alien name. That is, after all, what happened to the Nahiowak, now more widely known as the Cree, and the Katepua Sepa, more widely known today as the Capel River. These new names came from French traders, and the authors of the modern Capel legend seem eager to legitimize the colonialist act of naming the river Capel by literally placing that name in the mouths of the First Nations. Gross. Though many of these storytellers insist that French traders were inspired to name the valley after this legend, and in honor of a young man literally calling out Capel to an unseen spirit, the reality is that the French called the river Capel not because they were inspired by any particular story, but because that's the translation of what the locals called it. And the locals called it that long before any European set foot on the continent. 
Depending on who you ask, Katepwa Sepa translates to either what is calling river or, more likely, river that calls. Either way, they translate to the same thing in French, rivière capelle. So we know that the capelle was known as the calling river long before the French got involved, but that leaves us wondering, was its name actually inspired by this legend of two star-crossed lovers? Part 3. Catepua Sepe First, let's talk about the area itself. The Capel River Valley is gorgeous. Carved by an ancient river and framed by deep ravines, sloping hills, and verdant groves, the valley is dominated by four lakes, known as the Fishing Lakes, that are chained together by the Capel River. The entire area serves as a fantastic counter-argument to anyone who complains that Saskatchewan is nothing but boring, flat, dry land. Its unique beauty has drawn people to its waters for generations. Archaeological evidence suggests that the valley has served as a gathering place for at least a thousand years. It's generally accepted that the name of the Calling River likely comes down to acoustics, the way that sound echoes and reverberates throughout the valley and along the water. It's suggested that it was these strange echoes that inspired the name, and it was the name, in turn, that inspired a number of explanations both normal and paranormal. The earliest written record of the river's name comes from the journals of a young trader named Daniel William Harmon. After a particularly miserable and cold night on the plains in March of 1804, Harmon arrived at the upper part of the river where, in his words, quote, a white man was never known to penetrate so far, end quote. His journal entry for that day reads, Katabai Seppu, or the river that calls. This stream is so named by the superstitious natives who imagine that a spirit is constantly going up or down it, and they say that they often hear its voice distinctly, which resembles the cry of a human being. It's just two sentences from a 382-page journal, but it gives us a glimpse at a legend that, at this point, is securely tied to the land. It seems that this legend doesn't have a lot in common with the story made famous by Johnson nearly a century later. Note the use of the present tense and the plural. They say they often hear its voice distinctly. In 1804, according to Harmon's journal, to hear a ghostly echo on the river is a contemporary and shared experience. Thus, the voice of the river is heard not by just one lovesick Romeo, but by many within the community, and they attribute it not to a deceased loved one, but to a spirit that roams the water. Fifty-four years later, in 1858, another foreigner arrived. This time, it was a surveyor and naturalist named James Austin Dickinson, who, in July, decided to paddle down the Capel River to Fort Ellis in present-day Manitoba. There, he met an old Cree hunter who drew them an incredibly detailed map of the region and shared with them a legend of the valley. It was interpreted and translated by the chief factor at the fort and then recorded by Dickinson in his journal. Quote, A solitary Indian was coming down the river in his canoe many summers ago when one day he heard a loud voice calling him. He stopped and listened, and again he heard the same voice as before. He shouted in reply, but there was no answer. He searched everywhere around, but could not find the tracks of anyone. So, from that time forth, it was named the Who Calls River. End quote. The Valley of 1858 was a very different place compared to the Valley of 1804, when Harmon had been the only white person to have ever set foot in the area. Now, an Anglican mission had been established at the center of the lakes just four years earlier, joining an already existing outpost of the Hudson's Bay Company. Times had changed, and the old hunter's story suggests that the legend had changed as well. In this version, the voice of Katapua Sepa is no longer part of a shared, communal experience. The mysterious voice is not an oft-encountered aural manifestation of a particularly noisy river spirit, but an isolated incident encountered by one solitary man at some indeterminate point in the past. 
it's one huge step closer to Pauline Johnson's poem. There's no mention yet of a beloved partner or an untimely death, no suggestion that the voice might actually belong to a human spirit, but it feels as if that can't be very far behind. There's one more early story that I'd like to share with you. Sometime between 1854 and 1884, a great Cree chief and medicine man named Kakishiwe, or Loud Voice, told some oblate missionaries something akin to the following. Once, long ago, two groups of people left their homes with the intention of meeting and exchanging information. One group traveled north, the other traveled south, until they both reached either side of a river. The water was wide and moving quickly, and neither group could see a way across. So instead, the two groups stood on their respective banks and called out their news across the river. It has been known as the Calling River ever since. Now, I admit it's not the most romantic story, but it's practical, and it does have its charms. It lacks any kind of poetry or romance, but that makes it the perfect palate cleanser for the somewhat saccharine tale that's better known today. Plus, I think it's great that a story about yelling across a river was told by a man literally named Loud Voice. A man, by the way, who wasn't just a great leader, but also, according to one contemporary source, a talented ventriloquist as well. Apparently, he could make it sound like his voice was coming from any direction. Now that fits the theme of Capel so perfectly, you'd think I was making it up. Unfortunately, these early stories were never recorded, so we'll never know for certain if these translated journal entries properly represent the folklore of the time. It could be that Harmon heard the story from someone who didn't know the story very well or wasn't great at telling stories. But at least these accounts offer a glimpse into what the legend of Capel might have been in the years before Pauline Johnson made it famous. But what about after? Are there other legends of the valley that were published later, perhaps overshadowed by Johnson's work? That leads us to part four, The People of the Plains. According to accounts at the time, by the early 1900s, the call of a mysterious river spirit seems to have transformed completely to become the voice of the dead, at least according to settler interpretations. In 1909, linguist and author Amelia McLean Paget published a book titled People of the Plains, the result of a commission from the Department of Indian Affairs to record the history, customs, folklore, and beliefs of the Plains Cree and Salto peoples. Unlike Dickinson and Harmon, who were outsiders simply passing through the area, Paget was born in the Northwest and raised in the Capel Valley. Her father, a Scotland-born HBC clerk, and her mother, a member of an important Métis family. Also, unlike Dickinson and Harmon, Paget had no need for an interpreter. Growing up at different outposts, she became fluent in at least a few of the Cree dialects. When Paget was asked to write a report on the indigenous people of the prairies, she sought out communities she had known since childhood and was often welcomed as a friend. When she interviewed various elders and asked to hear their stories, she did so in their language, then conferred with other community leaders to ensure she got it right. It wasn't perfect. Paget's work is generally regarded as having a lot of flaws that reflect the time period, but it's still invaluable in helping us better understand the culture and the customs of the time, including the customs and stories found in the Capel Valley. There is much superstition and romance, she writes, contained in the name given by the Crees and Salto to the beautiful Capel Valley. The Indians named this valley Kaktepwa Wisipi, the Calling River, because of the wonderful echoes heard along its banks and over its lakes, which they believe to be the voices of their friends and former companions in the happy hunting grounds. The old Indians told many legends of the effects produced and the warnings given them by this echo. Probably none appealed more to their love of romance than the following. She goes on to tell a story that is similar but different to Johnson's version. Here's the basic breakdown. Once upon a time, there lived a brave and selfless Cree warrior. 
he was the only son of a kind and thoughtful chief who himself was loved by his people. The chief's son was always eager to volunteer to lead scouting expeditions and raiding parties against their traditional enemy, the Blackfoot. One day, the son and his companions were scouting when they were suddenly ambushed. Most were killed, but some managed to escape, including the chief's son. The survivors quickly realized, however, that he would not make it home. The chief's son, the leader of their party, had been mortally wounded. As he lay dying, he told his companions not to grieve for him. He said that he would soon be joined by his betrothed, a beautiful woman who they knew was safe at home, waiting for him to return. His companions stayed with him until he died, wrapped and left his body according to their customs, and returned to their main camp in the valley. They broke the news to the tribe and told them what the dying warrior had said. They grieved for the chief's son, but also had sad news of their own. That same night that the chief's son had died, his betrothed had been standing on the water's edge, watching for his return. Suddenly, she came rushing into camp and told the others that she had heard her beloved's voice calling to her from across the lake. Desperate to answer his call, she took a birch bark canoe and paddled out to meet him and was never seen again. It said that, ever since, both of their voices joined the calls of the dead that are often heard echoing across the water and throughout the valley. Now, I really like this version. Sure, it's a downer that both of them die, but it works better with the romantic notion that their spirits remain connected through death. It also gives the female character a little more agency. She actually makes a choice and takes action in this version. In the most popular version today, the female character just lays down and dies of a broken heart. Now here's where it gets really interesting. Paget notes that this legend was just one of many. Intriguingly, there is a second, slightly different version of this story that appears later in Paget's book. The author doesn't mention the differences between the two stories. She doesn't even offer a full narration. Instead, she gives us a quick summary that she outlines in a chapter about poetry and music. She writes, quote, One of the prettiest of the many traditions relating to the valley was that of the young woman who, imagining her lover was calling to her from one of the hills, pushed off in her little bark canoe and was never heard of anymore. Her voice was left in the valley and answers back in plaintive tones when anyone calls. Her lover returned a short time after her departure, but though he followed her, never found even a trace of her canoe. At twilight, her canoe would appear for a few minutes upon the surface of one of the many beautiful lakes in the valley, only to disappear again in a soft mist if anyone tried to approach it. This was a favorite theme, and the tune to which the many different words are sung is most fascinating." End quote. Now that's an unexpected ending, especially when compared to the other stories. This story is much darker, even chilling. Here, the young woman doesn't hear the actual call of her lover. He's alive and well and already on his way back home. No, she hears something else. Something that misleads her, maybe even tricks her. Perhaps it's a spirit that roams up and down the river and calls out to people in a human voice, like the one mentioned in Harmon's journal entry from 1804. If so, the fact that she is never seen again suggests that this spirit could have mischievous, if not malicious, intent. Part 5. The Search for Authenticity So far, we've heard five versions of the legend of Capel and they all differ to varying degrees from the version made popular by Pauline Johnson. That fact has led some critics to claim that what Johnson had presented as an authentic indigenous legend is somehow counterfeit. Some even suggest that she personally fabricated the story after drawing some minor inspiration from more quote-unquote genuine tales. There are a few problems with this suggestion aside from it being somewhat dismissive and sexist. First, it would be a mistake to suggest that any one of these stories is more authentic than the other. None come directly from a member of the Cree nation, and thus all of them are likely tinted by the complications of translation, cultural interpretation, 
and colonialism. Second, there's at least one other story that matches Johnson's version, beat for beat. In 1892, Methodist minister and scholar John McLean published the third edition of his book, The Indians of Canada, Their Manners and Customs. Inside, you'll find a legend of the Capel Valley that has the same plot points as Johnson's poem, right down to the protagonist inexplicably yelling out, Capel. A year before that, in the April 25, 1891 edition of the Dominion Illustrated Magazine, you'll find the same essential story briefly outlined in a very melodramatic travelogue titled Out West, written by the same author but under the pseudonym Robin Rustler, a name he used for work penned for more popular and less scholarly publications. Both of these pieces were written at least seven years before Johnson's poem was published, proving, at the very least, that E. Pauline Johnson did not simply make up the story and try to pass it off as an authentic legend. Instead, you might be inclined to think that Johnson read McLean's book or magazine article and borrowed the story for her poem. But it goes a little deeper than that. Johnson always said that she first heard the legend of Capel from someone named Father Joseph Huguenard at the Labrette Mission. She explained that she simply took his story and transformed it into poetry. For his part, John McLean mentions in his travelogue Out West about the genial and cultured Father Huguenard, suggesting that he met the man on his journey. It seems very likely, then, that both McLean and Johnson heard the legend of Capel from Father Huguenard, and both authors then proceeded to share the story in their own way. So at this point, it should be very clear that there is no one authentic version of the legend of Capel. And so we can't say if any one story inspired the name of the river. It seems more likely that some strange but completely natural phenomena inspired the name, and the name then inspired the legends. I think it's likely that the Riffier Capelle was not intended to be read as Who is Calling River, but perhaps more directly as The River That Calls. It also seems a little unfair to discount one particular version just because it's a little heavy with seemingly Victorian sentiment and romance. In People of the Plains, Amelia Paget suggests that the story of how the river got its name was a popular topic of legend and also of song. Paget explains that, in song, the tune and general subject would remain the same, but the words would change from singer to singer. That means that each time someone sang of the Capel Valley, they made that song their own. Taken as part of this greater tradition, all of the stories I've covered tonight could be considered both authentic and original. So that leaves us just one last question. Part 6. Myths and Legends The question is this. With so many different versions of the story, why did Pauline Johnson's become so definitive? An obvious answer is simply exposure. Johnson was a very popular author and performer in her day, and her work would have reached a lot of people through her performances, her books, and her other published work. But it's not just the fact that she was famous. Johnson wrote a lot of poetry and prose throughout her life, and while some are still well-known today, others have either been forgotten or lost completely. I think one of the reasons why Johnson's story has survived is because it resonated with the tastes and interests of 1900s North America. Johnson first published The Legend of Capel Valley in 1898 and likely performed it in 1899, a time of endings and retrospection. Imagine, the 19th century is almost over. The Victorian era will also end in less than two years. The Klondike, that last gasp of the Western frontier, and a word that once inspired ideas of freedom and fortune now inspires only contempt and derision. Ah, go to the Klondike, has become a popular phrase for expressing disgust. Much of Dawson City, the iconic Yukon boomtown, has burned to the ground. The prospectors have left. The last great gold rush is over. The governments of the New World and their railroads now stretch from ocean to ocean. Horseless trams now glide across the countryside, thanks in part 
to hydroelectric energy harnessed from the once untamable Niagara Falls. In a few months, the Second Boer War will break out and Canada will send its troops overseas for the very first time, signifying the young nation's shift from infancy to adolescence. The Wild West has been tamed, but its mythology lives on. At this time, people throughout the United States and Canada are obsessed with the notion of the fading frontier, and indigenous people have become an unwilling symbol of the dying West. Crowds still flock to Buffalo Bill's Wild West show to immerse themselves in the romance and the whimsy of popular Western lore, watching night after night fanciful and exciting reenactments of legendary battles and the thrilling sharpshooting of Annie Oakley. The wealthy hop aboard trains that whisk them away to the exotic wilderness of the Canadian West where they can gawk at strange wildlife and stranger people from the comfort and safety of a passenger car, as if they were on a ride at Disneyland. One eager English traveler, quote-unquote academic and raging racist Douglas Sladen, remarked how, on an 1894 trip through the Selkirks, quote, the Indians and the Bears were splendid stage properties, end quote. This comes after he insults an indigenous man, comments that the man's wife, quote, was not bad-looking, end quote, and compares their child to a puppy, all the while throwing in an anti-Semitic comment for good measure. Gross. If spectacular displays of sharpshooting, racing, rodeos, and battle reenactments weren't for you, and you didn't have the time or the money for a whimsical trip along the Canadian Pacific Railway, you might have considered attending a performance by E. Pauline Johnson, who, for about 15 cents, would whisk you away to the western wilds through the magic of the spoken word. Now again, please understand, this is nothing against Johnson. She was a talented author and performer, and in many ways an advocate for all indigenous people. But she also knew how to give her audience exactly what they craved and it came in the form of bittersweet frontier romance like The Legend of Capel Valley. Its themes of lost innocence and sudden, unavoidable death seem to fit right in with the myth of the vanishing native, a trope that's still popular today. In fact, this connection between legend and trope is made agonizingly clear in John McLean's, or rather Robin Russler's, article that I mentioned earlier. While the piece, titled Out West, does contain a brief summary of the Capel legend, the article is actually more of an obnoxious travelogue that recounts, you guessed it, a fanciful trip by train to the exotic Canadian West, full of, quote, pleasant memories of red men, half-breeds, beautiful lakes, and northwest romance, end quote, as well as, quote, scantily dressed children who are happy indeed in their poverty and filth, end quote. He opens his piece with this shining example of cringeworthy colonial romantic nonsense. Quote, Prosaic indeed must be the traveler who can sit in the lodges listening to the traditions of the natives without a pang of regret and a longing to gaze once more upon the boundless prairie covered with thousands of buffalo, dotted with buffalo skin lodges, ornamented with pictures of various colors detailing the history of the martial heroes of the camp and the large bands of antelope which roamed in innocence amid the primitive glory of the plains of Assiniboia. Alas, a great change has come in the interests of civilization, but the poet and artist cannot fail to drop a tear in silence for the faded glory of the native races, who, as they gaze upon the iron horse rushing past them, cannot help nursing their wrath to keep it warm." End quote. McLean follows this nonsense with the legend of Capel, and ends on a poetic note to tie everything together. Quote, the shades of night fell upon us, and as we cast a retreating glance upon the lakes in the beautiful vale, we thought we heard from out of the water the voice of the Indian lover. And, as we listened, all we heard him say was, Capel. Ugh. McLean and Johnson's shared version of the legend of Capel fits perfectly with the racist, romantic sentiment that was popular in the 1890s, a time of reminiscing about a non-existent past, an idealistic, simpler time, as they anticipated the dawn of a new century. This was a story about a young indigenous man from the distant past who returns home from the archaic romance of tribal war to find that his betrothed 
a symbol of his culture and his future, has died suddenly and inexplicably. All that's left is an echo. Silently, he climbs back into his canoe and vanishes from sight, never to be seen again. It's a fate that many at the time expected from the First Nations, to simply accept the end of life as they knew it, embrace British quote-unquote civilization, and allow their history, culture, and identity to simply fade away. To help illustrate this point even further, I feel the means by which this story was delivered is just as significant as its message. Johnson knew what her audience wanted and meticulously designed her performance to appeal to this kind of romantic idealism and false nostalgia. By 1899, most women on the Six Nations Reserve preferred wearing European skirts and gowns, but Johnson created a -a one-of-a-kind, eye-catching costume using modern goods from the Hudson's Bay Company and relics from the past. Despite what the papers said, it was not an authentic garment of hers or any other culture. It was, literally, a costume, designed to generate intrigue and interest. The hunting knife came from her father. Those silver trade brooches that glimmered in the light were heirlooms from her grandmother, antiques even then of the fur trade. The Huron scalp belonged to her grandfather, as did her stage name. When she performed poems like The Legend of the Capel Valley, Johnson was a walking, talking, fanciful anachronism, a blast from the romanticized past. When she came back on stage for the second act, dressed as a modern English gentlewoman, she was performing, perhaps unknowingly, what many in her audience expected from the coming century. The transformation of a pretty but primitive native girl into a modern, civilized woman of the new age. In this way, the legend of Capel has become a myth told by and within a myth. Part 7. Legacy Many people have told the legend of Capel throughout the years, and the majority have been influenced by Pauline Johnson's poem or short story. Nearly all of them are a little hard to read, steeped as they are in sappy melodrama, colonial romance, and racist misconceptions. It's easy to be totally dismissive, to consider the popular story as nothing more than cheap fiction, a quaint legend, as the author Trevor Harriet put it, that is, quote, of some comfort to the colonial mythmakers who would have us believe that the Indians have been conquered, end quote. But that kind of thinking can also carry with it another insidious and potentially racist idea, that when people of the First Nations share this story today, they're somehow not sharing a piece of their culture, but rather a flawed tale that has been tainted beyond memory by Victorian romance and colonialist ideals. But to be honest, I think the legend deserves a little more respect. There's no reason to think that indigenous storytellers of the late 19th and early 20th centuries were influenced by anything other than their own culture and personal appreciation for romantic themes. It's just that the Victorian fixation with lost innocence, the fading frontier, and the vanishing native influenced the way the story has been published in the years since. Amelia Paget recorded stories very much like Johnson's before Johnson's popular poem had a chance to really take hold in the public consciousness. And Paget noted in her book that many of the Cree and Salto people she knew had a soft spot for romantic stories and songs and that it wasn't uncommon for there to be multiple versions of one particular song because the words would change with each singer. Same tune, same topic, different lyrics. The version of The Legend of Capel that we know today is one of those songs. Sure, it might be the mainstream top 40 of its day, but it has a deeper connection to a culture and a tradition that goes back generations. For better or worse, the legend of Capel is now a staple of prairie lore, still being passed from generation to generation through families of countless backgrounds and cultures. It's a story that was shared with me by people in my own family, one of Ukrainian ancestry who grew up in Saskatchewan, the other of Métis heritage. I think the story itself is solid. It just needs to lose about 130 years of varnish. So, in the spirit of taking a familiar song and making it your own, I'd like to share a story that was inspired by the many different legends of the Capel Valley. Same tune, same topic, 
different lyrics. He crossed the border at sunset, and she was on his mind. There was still nearly 500 kilometers between here and her, but already he felt a little better. The gas fields were now in another province, their flare stacks burning in the orange skies and ochre dust of Alberta's badlands. There were no signs to welcome him back. No markers along the fourth meridian to show where Alberta ended and Saskatchewan began. Just an empty rest stop a few minutes outside Walsh, and the sight of an endless plane rolling alongside him. Familiar infinity. He tried to call from a gas station. His fingers drummed the payphone top, red and coke machine glow, as he looked back at the car parked beneath humming lights. She would flip when she saw it. A 1972 midnight blue Dodge Demon. At three years old, it was nearly new, as the salesman put it. AM-FM radio, 8-track, blackout hood, 8-cylinder engine that purred on the highway. The salesman had slapped the hardtop and grinned. It had been traded, reluctantly, by a Calgary roughneck for a family sedan. Great shape. Good price. The salesman extended a smooth hand with gold rings on four fingers. He took it. The handshake had drained his finances and lengthened his time away from her, but the job paid well, and soon he had enough for a down payment on a home. Now he was returning triumphant, with a better car, a home, a career, a future. The line buzzed twice before the cook answered and said she was busy, that he'd tell her he called. He said not to bother, that he would surprise her instead, and hung up. He listened to the metallic clunk as the phone swallowed his dime, then slid back in the car and turned the key. The engine roared to life. With luck, he would reach Capel at midnight, the same time she would get home from work. He would park on the street and surprise her at her bedroom window like he had done a thousand times growing up. She would be shocked at first and then throw herself in his arms and he'd never let go. He imagined the next morning when he would stand at the doorstep and shake her father's hand and they would chat politely while she packed. She would throw her things on the rear seat and they would drive with the sun at their backs and the radio blaring. He burned through Swift Current, Waldeck, Morse, and Chaplin where the lake salt piled near the highway like snowdrifts or whitecaps frozen in time. At Moose Jaw, he took a moment to grab a coffee and search the radio dial. Rhinestone Cowboy flitted through static, and he sang along. He was just 30 minutes away when the late-night DJ gave an unexpected traffic update. There was a collision on Highway 35 just south of Fort Capel. That section would be closed as emergency crews remained on scene. He dipped the car into the shallow ditch and swung round, then backtracked to Highway 210 and followed it north through fields and farms and, eventually, skinny clusters of trees until the black water of Echo Lake shimmered in the darkness. A small but necessary detour to reach her in time. The radio died first, or at least that's how it seemed. There was a pop of static and then silence. The headlights went black and the vehicle rolled to a stop. Turning the key did nothing. He leaned forward and checked his watch in the moonlight. 11.30. After he was done cursing the salesman, he popped the hood and peered at the engine like a seer reading entrails, seeking meaning in belts and hoses and valves. He was leaning over the radiator when he thought he heard a voice. He looked around but saw no one. Deciding that he was lost under the hood, he slammed it shut and moved to the door when he heard the voice a second time, now more clearly. It was a woman calling his name, but not from the road. It was coming from the lake. He walked to the edge. The moon rippled on the surface, and he could see lights on the southern shore, but nothing else. No boats, no people. Hello? he called out. Who's there? Nothing. 
Nerves, he thought. Stress. Imagination. A hallucination caused by fatigue from a full day's work and nearly six hours on the road. Back at his car, he tried the ignition again and was surprised when it worked. The engine rumbled, the radio snapped to life, and the headlights pointed home. He arrived just before midnight, parked the Dodge a few houses down, and walked the rest of the way. The moon beamed through yellow-topped trees and cast shadows on the sidewalk. He stopped short when he saw the light from her porch, a reflex from the early days when they would sneak away after her father had gone to bed. Then he saw the open door, the lamp in the front room, the golden light from the window, her father standing frozen on the doorstep listening to an officer at the foot of the stairs, a police cruiser parked in the driveway. He quickened his pace, cut across the lawn. Both turned as he approached. Her father spoke his name in dreamy disbelief, eyes wet, voice thick and gritty like mud smeared on sand. What was he doing here? She had left after work to go to him, to drive all night to surprise him the next day. But if he was here, did that mean... Her father looked at the officer. Maybe it wasn't her. Maybe it was someone else. He stepped closer. What were they talking about? Where was she? What happened? Gone. Her father drew a ragged breath and the officer continued for him. There had been a collision on the highway just south of town. She had been injured in the crash, and she died at the scene. The smack of a screen door shook him from his daze. He looked through the front window, saw her father crumpled on the couch. He nodded slowly. The porch light bloomed and swayed with emotion. He thanked the officer, then turned and began to cross the lawn when he heard his name for a fourth time that night. He looked back. The officer approached. That was his name, right? He nodded. The officer sighed. She hung on for a bit. The paramedics who were with her, they said she spoke that name twice before she passed. The officer hoped that was a comfort. Somehow, he found his way back to the car. He turned the key, he put it in drive, he got back on the highway again this time pointing toward the setting moon. All he could think about were the stories he heard as a child. The stories of spirits on the water, of the river and its lakes, and voices on the air. The legends of the valley of the winding Ketepwa Sepe, the river that calls. That's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening and for joining me in becoming part of a Canadian folk tradition. Now that you know the story, share it. And remember, a place can have many names and many stories behind it. It's in our best interest to learn as many as we can. Fireside Canada is written and recorded by me, David Williams. Sound design and mixing is by Ryan Clark. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider giving this podcast a positive review. If you want to help even further, you can support me through my website. Every little bit helps to keep the fire burning and the library of legends growing. Learn more at firesidecanada.ca.